It's August 16, 2022, and I'm talking with Matt McGregor on the week's acquisition headlines. So let's jump right into the first one. Air Force PEO looking to speed up program start testing for wedge tail. And so basically, I think there's two main parts I took out of this one. First, they're looking for an above threshold reprogramming to get started on the wedge tail early in fiscal year 2022, rather than waiting for future year budgets to get that started. And then the other part is that the United Kingdom is also buying three of the E7s to replace their own AWACS. And so those are expected to actually go into service 2023. And they are expecting that potentially the US Wedgetail and UK Wedgetail could share some kinds of testing and evaluation. But yeah, of course, the Air Force is saying it's going to be a rapid prototype and we'll get the the first one in 2027. So um there might be some potential to cut down on that. And that's what everybody seems to be talking about. Yeah. The, the one thing that, uh, you know, makes me think that the ATR might not go through is it, it didn't sound as if that money was going to buy a ton of time. Uh, I think it was like on the order of months or something. Um, so I, I'm kind of a skeptical on how compelling that will be, uh, for the Hill. And, uh, you know, especially given, you know, that, uh, that this is like not being bought till 2027. So I really do hope they can find ways of speeding that up because it does sound kind of crazy. I, I, the one thing we talked about the last time was like, what are the, what are the deltas between the UK version and then the, uh, the Air Force version here? A little bit hard to tell, but it is interesting that they're, they're proposing doing testing on one of the UK variants. So you'd think it would be fairly close. Um, and yeah, so still a little bit, uh, Still a little bit surprising that it's going to take take that long, but uh, yeah. In addition to the the new start, so that reprogram request also has like a, the new start provision in it to actually allow them to get going. So it's not just money, but new start authority. Um, and then they're also going to need in order to get that contract in February, they're going to need an anomaly, a CR anomaly, most likely, unless unless the budget gets passed, you know, earlier. So um, which which hasn't happened uh, recently, but uh, you always you know never know. Uh, so yeah, so kind of kind of interesting, uh, but yeah, definitely with ABMS not really there yet. Uh, the E7 is pretty important for uh, for any fight, given where the AWACS and uh, AWACS fleet is. So yeah, yeah, it's just the gap filler. Why not? Isn't the UK version going to have enough capability? Or like, yeah, <laughs> no. really? Like no. you you said it. The what is the delta there in that capability, and is it really worth? you know, turning a gap filler into something probably much longer term and you're going to have it for 40, 50 years. Uh, next one, we got NRO Air Force may co-fund future space-based ISR, Kendall says. And so I guess there's some potential IC turf infringement by the Space Force going on. So there's overlapping gaps that need to be kind of smoothed over. I'm not really sure, you know, how the Space Force makes this new relative to what had gone before it with the NRO. But one of the things that they highlight here is on orbit GMTI ground moving target indicator sensors. And uh, so, yeah, I'm not, it's kind of interesting. I'm not really sure like co-funding if that's necessarily going to be the best way for, for these communities to work together. But um, it looks like people are clamoring for some kind of clarity and roles. Yeah. I honestly don't think the co-funding is the problem. Um, I think, uh, you know, that actually has been done before and, 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 you know, it's, it becomes one of those things where 
these are two different agencies, right, with two different cultures. Uh, but let's just be honest, the military side, even though NRO is, is really heavily staffed by military, it's, it's part of the IC. And they're, they're very different cultures in general. Um, the military side is, you know, generally more, you know, rapid, you know, let's like, you know, we're, we're, we're supporting tactical fights and things like that. The ISR is more informing, you know, generally informing or the IC generally informing leadership. Uh, so, so more like leadership type decisions that are more deliberative. So not to say that they don't support tactical, there, there are different missions they have, but in general, different communities. So I think it's one thing when the Air Force is providing something to the, to the Intel community. I think it's another thing in terms of operations if the intel community is is a dependency for a military operation or military, um, you know, critical critical information. So that that I think will be interesting is if they fund it, but the NRO operates it and they control the data where the data goes, uh, the timing of that and all all that 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 could be a lot more problematic. So, but but in general, I mean, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Um, to, to co-fund. I think GMTI is going to become really interesting because, you know, those, those centers do exist, um, but they're going to have to get a lot more precise. There's going to have to be a lot more, um, you know, greater use of them. They're going to have to be collated with other, you know, other types of, of radar imagery and potentially uh, high altitude UAV and stuff like that. So you're going to have to be able to fuse that together and actually provide like a, you know, target, a target solution for a ship or, or some other adversarial kind of thing out there in the ocean. So, you know, when you start to get into that mission, I think it's even more problematic for, uh, for the IC to, to run that mission. I think that does need to be in Space Force uh, because you have Spacecom who is tied in through the command structure with, with, the, uh, with the other COCOMs and can, can, uh, can command and control forces. So, yeah. I don't know. I think we'll we'll see where that goes, but that's I think sort of the will be some of the interesting things to watch. Yeah, cool. Thanks for that. Um, a lot there to kind of think about. Uh, I was always under the impression that the GMTI sensors were actually pretty good from space, but you're saying they have some ways to go before um, they can kind of do the things that are needed. Well, they're they are really good, right? They're um, they can they can detect they can discriminate between different types of objects and things like that. But I think moving forward into the future, especially in sort of denied environments, you might be relying on those things to provide real target solutions, right? Not just to discriminate and say, hey, there's some, there's an airplane, it looks like an airplane coming here. Uh, you're going to have to be able to actually be more precise with that and actually provide that to a missile system, um, you know, to actually target and say, yeah, fire in this direction. So I think I think that's where the improvements will come. And I think that's sort of what you know, General Raymond already kind of hinted at what the space RCO and things are working on some classified projects that will uh, will probably improve that a, a lot and make that more uh, you know more usable for the warfighters. And actually, there was a there was a note there about China doing the same thing, basically combining GMTI and synthetic aperture radar um, with their Galfen uh, three satellites. So yeah, the, the Chinese are doing some similar things. Cool. Well, next one we got here is components. From the United States, Japan, Switzerland, Great Britain, Germany, Netherlands, and Korea, South Korea, that is, were found in Russian cruise missiles and air defense systems. And so there was a report here from the Royal United Services Institute finding 450 foreign-made components in Russian weapons used in Ukraine. Most of those were American, including places like analog devices and Texas instruments. Um, those were 
um, over a quarter of, of the total there. And it says that for most part, these uh, giants here that are selling these components are saying that, well, they're going to make sure that there's sanctions and they're not going to get to Russia. But the, the report also finds that a lot of these chips uh, that were uh, on these cruise missiles were actually ex- subject to the U.S. export controls. So um, all that type of, I guess, diligence in the past actually didn't result in um, Russia not being able to get what they needed in terms of micro... looks like some of these are microchips, others are just like, um, you know, component, like peacemake parts. So, yeah, interesting. They, they have the same issues as us, right? Like reliance on foreign <laughs> industry. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I mean, especially some of those, some of the higher end ships, uh, Russia's never, never gotten there with that. Uh, they've always relied on, uh, always relied on overseas. Yeah, I talked to a, like a Russian expert. Um, uh, you know, basically studies like you know how the how the Russian military operates, and they are really good uh, based on based on some of the things he said. Really good at uh, sort of having all these different back channels, and they can go through different countries. And you know, electronic parts too, in general, are almost never sold by the companies. So Xilinx and Texas Instrument don't sell direct. Uh, they sell to distributors, right? They sell to these third parties that basically handle sort of distribution and management and storage of components or whatever. So they can, they can sort of, you know, deal with the market forces, you know, when they, you know, as they, as they kind of, you know, sell and, and restock and things. So, um, so yeah, so there's, these companies are not even directly in the loop anyway, but, you know, there are these distributors and different third parties where those things can just, you know, they make their way, right? You can only do so much. You can sanction, but basically, there's there's too many holes in the system, so it's not too surprising, I'd say. Yeah, and potentially that also means it's on the backside for us. Like, there's opportunities that even if there are these bottlenecks, you don't have to eliminate all of them. There will be some ways of getting at some of these. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a good know, point, items, right? <laughs> like you yeah, just yeah. have you just have to think like the Russians, right? You gotta be scrappy. Yeah, that you know, well, that's that's interesting to say that because like rare earth materials, right? There's a lot of press, and, and I and I think it's super important. So I would I'll downplay it, but you know, this idea that China could cut off rare earths, and they, they did they did do that to Japan, but in general, the, the rare earth market, even in China, is very black marketish. Um, a lot of it is done in these like sort of back country. They're not done in these really sophisticated plants. It's a lot of this back country stuff. Uh, a lot of like sort of shady, really shady business. So, you know, it is kind of, it is kind of funny that like, you know, yeah, China might be able to, to, to like cut it off to Japan. Cause that was like more than, but to, to basically cut it off from the world, you know, if they're like, no one, no one's getting worse anymore, you know, that, that would be really hard. So it, it's, yeah, sometimes we should sort of balance, uh, balance some of these statements that, that people make about like, you know, world would end if this happened. You know. That, but of course, I, I don't think you would argue that it's not a good idea to invest no, in absolutely the yeah. refining. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I, I, I think it's absolutely needed. We need to have, we need to have some, we need to have some mining, and we do have it with Australia, but we need to increase our processing. I think we need to have some processors in the U.S. DARPA updates its Sea Train and No Mars USV, and so here's a nice little background on just like the Sea Hunter was came out of DARPA first before. It, started to transition over and um no mars is really the uh the next evolution in that and so what they're trying to do that's over and above what 
what was going on with the sea hunter is one all human survivability constraints are removed so there'll be no people on the nomars and a lot of these usvs they are unmanned but oftentimes it takes you know individuals to get them underway and otherwise um, so extremely low man or unmanned uh, but then the second one here uh, the nomars is also looking to operate for a year between maintenance cycles so maximizing reliability that one actually seems like it'll be incredibly difficult uh, to get to and then they also want to make sure that maintenance turnaround times are pretty pretty low so uh, looks like they're trying to advance the usv uh, industry here and a lot going on uh, excited to see what actually comes out of it yeah i will say <laughs> you know got to, you know tons of credit to darpa for starting the you know, ACTUV program that the, that the Sea Hunter and things came out of. But I will say this really doesn't feel like a DARPA mission to me, um, especially given the money that the, the Navy is putting towards some of these same problem sets. You like know, getting so, reliability? Yeah. DARPA mission. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's a little bit where I like reliability. Okay. Um, maintainability, you know, that's great. But it's a lot of like product support kind of stuff. And, you know, reliability can also be done with redundancy so you can have you know fail safes and backup systems so but, with, but for a year without a, like that seems like a big leap i don't know exactly what it's going to look like but a year before getting into maintenance cycles i mean wonder yeah it actually means on the ground but i don't know I, I think i think there though you also need to worry about the the balance of cost right like getting something you know you could make something with a titanium and you know gold and you know all these like superconductor materials yeah, that never degrade what's, <laughs> what's the requirement for a year versus 300 days versus 400 days you know right yeah so there's a knee in the curve there that i think you know is probably more suited for like the typical navy acquisition stuff and right you have utf the unmanned task force working this you have onr you know admiral selby's putting a lot of money into this so i don't know there's a lot of I'm a little surprised that DARPA sort of jumped on this as sort of this next gen thing because it feels almost like it feels almost like an upgrade. Um, well, but. well, DARPA also has a little bit of the credit with uh, Congress. Congress kind of likes putting money towards DARPA, yeah. whereas um, the Navy's USVs haven't been getting all the love. You know. Yeah, you're right. They do have a lot of money in the FIDA, but it, not necessarily not all of it necessarily has been approved. So maybe you're right. Maybe this is a little bit of like, hey, DARPA, why don't you keep taking the ball forward? And we'll, we'll glom onto it. <laughs> yeah, get it matured to TRL seven so I can document <laughs> it and get my life cycle cost down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, so one thing that is interesting there, I did notice it in the interview, is that this is actually a um, it's a medium, so they're focused on the medium USB, which. Which is interesting. Yeah, the Navy was saying that they might not even want those at all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why I was like, then the medium is 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 a, is a weird one because it's sort of like the the smalls are small enough where you can put ISR sensors and different things that can go that can go forward, but like the medium is not big enough for weapons, but it's also maybe unnecessary unnecessarily large for some of the smaller sensors. So yeah, it's kind of interesting they picked the MS, MUSV. I almost would have thought they. Maybe should have gone with the, the large USB where you could, you know, some of these weapons carriers, maybe you do want them just sitting out there like just, you know, hey, just hang out there and when we need you, we'll, we'll bring you online, you know. So I don't know. Kind of interesting. Well, speaking of unmanned, we'll go to the air in China. China unveils game changing electronic warfare drones and 
always a little bit of uh, showmanship with these articles. But the FH-95 completed a successful test at an undisclosed base. And the FH-95 provides electromagnetic interference to cover attacks by an FH-97 stealth drone that penetrates and destroys air defenses. And uh, there's also an FH-92A attack drone. And I'm sure a complement of all sorts of other types of drones that uh, China has. And so... Um, the whole point of this is that it looks like China's putting a lot of focus on electronic warfare uh, to disrupt the kind of networks and the unmanned systems that we might be trying to field and are thinking a lot about here in the United States. Yeah, I mean, uh, this just is this just is sort of the natural evolution. I feel like, the, you know, China's clearly put a lot of funding into drones Um and it's sort of a natural evolution, right? I mean, even the Air Force has MALDs that have some of these capabilities, uh, you know, EW and things like that. So it's it's not that crazy, I, I think, to see them going in this, in this direction. I think the key will be is sort of, you know, how close can they get? You know, how does the U.S. defend against them? Can you use sort of, you know, microwave lasers, you know, like... The, the, the counter drone sort of, def- you know, kind of story, I think, is is pretty interesting in terms of, OK, we're not going to fire super expensive AMRAMs at you at these little things, but maybe we can use other other means of sort of degrading them. Uh, but it's scary. I mean, I do think, you know, you get enough of these drones, they get close enough to some of our advanced get advanced capabilities. Uh, they can really cause a lot of disruption. Uh, they probably won't have enough power to permanently disable things, but they get close enough. They can, uh, they can certainly sort of degrade and, um, you know, not allow things to target maybe other missiles that are coming behind it or something. So. Yeah. Isn't the, I know the Skyborg program in the air force, they're looking at kind of like a multi-mission role set, but is, I mean, they're looking at the same thing for that, right? Cause I don't, I don't know if, how much is going to be passive versus active, but if you're going to admit some stuff, you might as well want to put that on something that's attributable or unmanned, right? Yeah, 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 that's a, that is a good point. Um, and actually, I should take it back about what I said about the power. I just looked at the specs on the FH-95. It has a one-ton takeoff weight, so it's actually yeah, no, these things, they, they pretty considerable. Pretty, yeah. Yeah, so that actually might be able to generate more power than that. But yeah, the, the collaborative uh, combat vehicle that's part of the NGAD program, um, you know, no doubt we'll have all kinds of, you know, I'm sure it'll be super high tech, super expensive. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm sure it'll have these things. Now, you know, I, I, I'm, I question that it will be attributable. Maybe, maybe it will fall somewhere in the realm of expendable, but. Um, these, these sound like they might also well, expendable. Not be attritable. Wait, what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, expendable. Not expendable, but attributable. Yeah, no, sorry, I got that wrong. Um, isn't there a third? What's the third Wait, one? But you're saying that it's going to fall between attributable and like survivable, not attributable, or yeah, between yeah, yeah. expendable, not expendable. Expendable yeah, is the low gonna, end. Well, this will be a high. This will be on the high end of yeah, attributable maybe. Those Skyborg programs will be about what ten five to ten million dollars a pop. Uh, no, no way. And then I, with no with the mission systems, it's like twenty something like that. Yeah, I, that's what I would predict. Like these this collaborative combat uh, vehicle. Yeah, sorry, I meant to say attributable. Yeah, so more on that high 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 attributable end where they really don't want to lose them uh, because they're going to have to have some stealth capabilities. They're going to have to have some advanced uh, you know advanced mission systems. So yeah, they're I I would predict at least twenty million. I mean, I can't see. 
I can't see that with those advanced electronics and things that no doubt will come out of NGAD. I can't see them being much cheaper than that. But uh, but yeah, this one too, though, right? I mean, if it's a ton, if it's a ton uh, takeoff, and they're they're trying to do these multi missions, it's stealthy. Um, you know, they're trying to do uh, uh, you know uh, penetrate enemy air defenses and things like that. They're going to have to have some advanced electronics too. So um, so maybe maybe this will be a, in a similar boat. Maybe these will be they won't quite be able to get to a swarm capability because they'll be just a little too sophisticated. But if you can get in that sweet spot uh, where they almost are expendable, like you're willing to lose a bunch of these and you can churn these out like no problem. And you get, you know, thousands of these things out there. I mean, that could be, that could be a war, war game changer, you know? So yeah, definitely, definitely something to worry about uh, because we're not anywhere close to having the, uh, our, our drones uh, fielded at, that, at those numbers where we're still catching up. So. Speaking of that, unmanned programs could suffer if Congress blocks F-22 retirement, Hunter says. And of course, that's Service Acquisition Executive of the Air Force, Andrew Hunter. And setting this up here, the Air Force wanted to retire 33 F-22s. And it looks like Congress is saying, well, hold on. We don't want you to not only not retire those, we actually want you to upgrade those to the newest configuration because they wanted to retire the older model jets that had been primarily used for training missions. And so a 2019 analysis here is claiming that that would cost about $50 million per jet to uh, bring the F-22 up to the newest configuration. And uh, so Hunter here is saying basically like, no, you know, well, if you can make that decision, Congress can obviously make that decision, but you know, you're going to have to be able to pull that money from somewhere. And they're saying um, some, one of the levers will be the Skyborg program which only requested $50 million in fiscal year 23 to transition technology. So um, relative, like that's not going to, that's not really going to pay for, for the shortfall of the F-22s. Right. So uh, maybe that was just a high, a high value program or a high visibility program that, that he could touch on. Yeah. You know, this, I don't quite understand the whole, why, why we can't retire some F-22s. I mean, they do have, a much longer range. So in a, in a way, they, they're practically double the range of F-35. So they are a little bit more relevant in that regard. Um, they have proven themselves to be really good quarterback aircraft, you know, in, in the uh, Syrian and uh, Afghanistan fight. But, you know, it's one of those things where F-35s are coming online and, you know, in, in high quantities. So 33 is like a, is like a blip really. And so if these things are going to take a lot of resources away from other, a lot more, you know, more relevant capabilities, uh, it's really a shame to, to see if this is being done just out of emotions for the F-22. Um, I think it's a little bit of shame that that's the case, but I, I do get it right. You know, we don't have the numbers of, we don't have the capacity we need. And so I think co- the Congress in general is really wary of, of letting things go that you don't have replacements for. And even though we have a lot more F-35s coming online, they're, they're, they're not there in the numbers yet. So I, I understand it on one hand, on the other hand, it doesn't really make a lot of sense because these are older aircraft. They've already been out of operations for a long time. It's going to take a lot of work. Um, and probably, you know, even when you do these upgrades, you know, these like laser pinning and different things that like sort of improve the structure, there's always things you miss and, and, and issues that come up. And maintenance, it's sometimes like maintainers bear the bear the brunt of it because they have to like go through, you know, extraordinary things to keep these things flying. 
So yeah, overall, don't think it's a good idea, but I, I do understand why. Very lucky. Well, it, it seems like the department had its kind of moment for divest to invest, and now that kind of mantra has really turned uh, the corner on that. And it it's going to be difficult, right, um, to find those new wedges. So it's either just going to be have to be like top line ads or um, not really sure, just like planned already obsolescence kind of gap filling stuff. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. I don't know how they're going to handle it. Honestly, I don't think uh, I don't think the money's there when you look at the, you know, no doubt the Navy is going to have more money shifted to them. They're going to have to for, to, to meet some of their goals. Um and then you see like the the nuke programs that that are being funded, and NGAD is taking a lot of money. F thirty five is still sucking up a ton of money. You have a lot of modernization going on in other areas, so there's a lot of priorities. So I, I do understand why Andrew Hunter made the point that if you don't take this away, and, and he also made the point about infrastructure and manpower, right? So you only have so many acquisition people, you only have so many lat, so many uh, you know program offices and and and, and people that, that do this. So if they're focusing on F-22 and modernizing them, they're not focused on, you know, the new thing. So, yeah, the trade-off. It's also interesting, you know, he, he definitely didn't say NGAD or the B-21 is is going to suffer, right? So it's always the, the big programs. Those are the ones most protected, right, from from these trade-offs. And so um, it's like yeah. the, hedge, the hedge bets against the big monolithic systems that are the ones that suffer. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, lawmakers propose changes to SBIR and program renewal deadline nears. And so lots of consternation going on with uh, the SBIR CIBR program in terms of its reauthorization, which is coming up. And there's been some, uh, I guess, discussions from the small business committees on the House and the Senate, you know, adding proposals to basically limit um, these quote-unquote cyber mills, right? Uh, the, the companies that get dozens of these uh, SBIR awards, getting tens of millions of dollars a year um, and coming back year after year after year doing that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, some of them were basically like, hey, we're going to limit the number of awards you receive over a five-year period or the total that you've gotten over your lifespan or create some types of benchmarks for transition rates from phase one to two and three. Um, to make sure that there's kind of more churn, I guess, in the in the cyber base um, or the companies that are able to participate. But then Heidi Shu and Bill LaPlante from DOD kind of responded along with the SBA that they have significant concerns about that and that they disagree. Apparently, uh, 47 to 95% of companies could be jettisoned from the program if some of these rules went into place. And I was actually pretty surprised um, I don't know what the exact number was that they were bantering about, like, because the one that was the, restrict the number of wards over a five year period, um, that one was supposed to be 95 percent potentially would stop doing SBIRs. So I wonder what what the metric was there. But ultimately, um, looks like DOD is pushing back. And actually, they say um, failure to reauthorize the programs would result in approximately 1200 warfighter needs not being addressed. Now, that's not the same as these SBIR mills, but, um, we'll see, we'll see kind of where this takes us, I suppose, in, in the coming cyber fight. Yeah. I mean, it, oh, I, I commented to somebody, um, recently that I feel like cyber is about to get the, uh, 
you know, basically the oversight mafia, you know, on them for the, for the foreseeable future. And, you know, I, I feel like this problem could have been solved with like a scalpel, but now it's going to be sort of solved with like a, a huge bludgeoning hammer, um, you know, and just all these sort of random things about like, well, if somebody gets two awards in three years and they're out, you know, it's like, well, that's our, our best performer. They're, you know, they have like these great researchers and they're coming up with all these great ideas. Sorry, I can't, I can't award to them. You know, it's going to be these sort of second and third order effects. Um, so I really wish we would have just said things like, if you're a publicly traded company, you don't get silver. If you're, you know, um, you know, you have to have, you know, some unique capabilities. You can't just basically. But why would a, I, why would a company that IPOs not be not be able to get a SIBR, but be able to um, get small business awards otherwise from Department of Defense. Well, I agree with you. I think Amanda, you know, Amanda Bressler's thing about how small businesses are determined also is like one of those things that's kind of getting lost in this. Uh, like that reform made so much sense to me to say, let's have income, you know, in, uh, revenue basically be the decider. Whereas like you, like you just said, you could have an IPO with a company with like a thousand or Bought 499 employees, but they're making 30 billion a year, uh, and they're still a small business. So yeah, there's there's some really weird things with small business too, and I those are the kind of things that like that, and then maybe some sensible sort of things on like cyber, you know, the cyber mills, like go after the cyber mills. But this idea of like, you know, max max, you know, maximum number of awards and limits, and I don't know. I do think it's going to be problematic, and I think some really good companies might get might get caught up in it. So I, I guess we'll see what comes out in the end, but. Yeah, never. I think we have to yeah. be careful with that stuff. Yeah, it is sometimes better to provide discretion, right? <laughs> um, and then what results results from that, rather than coming up with more rules upon rules upon rules. But another program here besides Sipper is the the Mentor Protege program. It looks like they're trying to at least DoD and advisors are thinking that they might want to kind of instigate this more between large and small businesses is apparently a large business, a traditional defense prime can, you know, help coach essentially a small company that wants to get involved and help them with business systems and understanding the regulations. And I think that the large businesses actually might get some of that reimbursed, um, some of that effort. So it's basically like free consulting for small businesses and the large businesses get reimbursed from the government. And it looks like they had some data here there were 1,200 former protégés uh, that serve as suppliers in DOD, represent approximately 5% of DOD's uh, small business contracting. Former protégés make up about $4 billion in current DOD small business contracts. And so, well, the first funny thing is they all remain small, <laughs> apparently, because that's just the way they talk about them. Uh, but $4 billion across 1,200, that's about $3 million per company. Uh, that doesn't sound so great. I'm sure not all 1,200 of them are in there. But yeah, I mean, I in general, I do like the idea of teaming and like contractors probably coming together and figuring out a solution to a requirements package or something um, rather than kind of coming at them individually. But I don't really know too much about this program. So it could be, could be a great thing. Yeah, I stumbled on this um, a number of years ago. And I remember being in a class where there were some industry people that a DAU class of industry people had been invited to. And so I talked to, uh, there was a company that had gone through this that had a mentor project. And they basically made the point that it's very dependent on who your mentor is. So some companies are very good about this, how they treat you and how they support you. Some are 
you know, not so good. So I do think there needs to be more metrics around this. Um, actually, I didn't talk about that with this previous Cibber article, but, you know, things like transition rate and, and commercialization rate for Cibber kind of makes sense that there should be some similar kind of metrics for, um, uh, for the Metro protege, you know, things like, yeah, do, you know, is, is, does the company, um, you know, continue to get business after that? Are they, how were they, how were they served by that relationship with prime? You know, what was the value achieved? How did it help them? Was it worth their time? Cause there is some, there is some overhead and paperwork associated with this. So, um, so I think it would be good to have some more metrics. I think the numbers here are a little bit weird. I think even as you were saying, you were kind of like, oh, what is this? Um, like over half of the MPP is 1,200. So I guess that means like 600 and something, you know, And then, but they make up 5% of 83 billion, 5% of 83 billion. Okay, I guess that's, I guess that's like, is that a good number? Is 5% good? Um, but then it's only like, you know, their co- current contracts come up to 862 million. Like that doesn't seem like that much. So um so yeah well, they, the 162 is the current protégés right the guys current, who are currently in it yeah current current protege okay yeah so just just i guess understanding like what are the goals are the goals to you know to per, to basically you know create new defense primes is the goal just to get better involvement in small businesses are there certain types of small businesses we want to we want to get more involved like are these businesses that are doing you know uh, janitorials services or they you know are they leading ai you know sort of tech you know so i think there's a lot more that should maybe be focused on with this program and it doesn't really sound like they've had much of that actually there was a comment that it hasn't really evolved over the thir- over the 30 years it's been in existence they don't really have good metrics record keeping reporting data analytics um so not that i think more reporting is always better but i think for this to really tell the effectiveness of the program, if it's really worth it, I think they might need some, might need a little bit more here. Yeah. Pension deadline could speed retirement of experienced Boeing engineers from the Seattle Times. So Boeing may see hundreds of veteran engineers retire this fall out of the pension adjustment uh, that could dramatically slash payments for those who chose to take a single lump as opposed to kind of like in, in your pension, you get a, I guess a standard uh, monthly payout instead of that the, the, for those guys who chose a single lump sum payout there, when the interest rates essentially go up, they will get paid much less. And so certain individuals say here say that his uh, payout might cut, be cut by more than $200,000. And so he's like, well, I'm just going to leave then. It's been fun. I love to stay, but I'm just going to leave because I don't want to take that financial hit. And so yeah, I mean, that's kind of crappy, but, you know, <laughs> I think something similar happens with a lot of these types of pension schemes where it's like, well, once you hit 20 or 25 years, then you basically have to go. Even if you wanted to stay, you're working for, you know, pennies on the dollar relative to your opportunity cost of leaving and just going work in the private sector somewhere else. So um, I think that kind of sucks, but Boeing also cut 2,900 engineering and technical employees in the region in 2020 due to the pandemic. So, yeah, it's going to be kind of interesting to see how that works out for their their workforce there. Yeah, it's, it's just this is like super bizarre to me because, and I think it's emblematic of the fact that Boeing has, clearly has two sides that, that that manage the company. There's the technical side who does come up with 
some really great, you know, great, really great things, but it's clear there's a very disconnected management side and, you know, they're not unique, but they seem to be one of the worst about this. Um, who's not looking at the big picture. They're looking at these short-term sort of stock growth and things like that. And so get, you know, what do you think that they should just admit? Cause I mean, those pensions were struck 20, 30 years ago. Right. So. Well, they're saying it's a pension adjustment. So that has no, to be well, some of alter. But it's based like the pension payout is dependent upon the like, I guess, the state of the economy. And one of those levers is the interest rate. So when the interest rate goes up, like, I guess it's backwards looking. If I retire now, then like I get a different payout than next year when the interest rates are different. And that changes my um, it's, it's like an automatic, I guess, like formula. Yeah, that's no, I don't understand. No, I, that sounds right. I, I just mean they're they're not um they're a private they're a private company they can they can make it just they can they can <laughs> you mean you know, they could just be like i'll just pay you for it just yeah it. or whatever like you know hey okay guys we're gonna you know we recognize that's a problematic thing we're you know we don't want to lose you um you know so we're gonna we're gonna deal with this and yeah i don't i don't know exactly the right way to deal with it whether it's to like you know change that interest rate thing or whatever but when you start to see like yeah, for one if, what if you're the guy that said i took the monthly payments because I didn't want to take that risk. And now you're bailing that guy out. I won't mind. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is that we were talking about people that are 35, 35 years old and 57 years old saying they're Wait, leaving. No, this 35 year boy. Oh, oh, 35 year going. Okay. He's been there for a long okay. time. Okay. Maybe he started when he was zero, but you know. Oh yeah, there was the other example was a guy fifty-seven, so like he couldn't have been there thirty-five years. But yeah, he's only fifty-seven. No, maybe yeah. I guess he could have started when he was like 20, he twenty, twenty, when he was eighteen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the I mean, those days of like that kind of pension plan, you know, and you stay with one company your whole life. Maybe like these guys are that might be like kind of like the last of a generation, you know. Well, definitely yeah. true for some of those, you know. Some of that expertise, like I think we've talked about before, but like that radar kind of expertise or that, uh, um, you know, sort of EW, like it's not something that graduate, college graduates are trained for. Like it, that is a discipline you like grow into over many years. And it's like black magic, even to like top engineers. So, yeah, if, you know, I guess it depends on the people that are losing here. But that one guy is an associate technical fellow. So he's probably, you know, probably somebody they wanted to keep around. Um Anyway, the the ironic thing to me is that Boeing has also been in other articles saying we don't think we're going to be able to do the you know uh, the new the new uh, you know presidential aircraft because we can't find people um, you know so they've been sort of crying about the fact that they they don't have people to do some of these projects. Well, okay, maybe you're right. Maybe like there's not an equitable way of doing this, but I have to imagine they had some discretion to say. We need we need to get these people on board. This guy's only fifty seven. We've trained him for years and years. He knows like all this stuff. Like we need to keep this guy. So I don't know. It is kind of crazy. And the fact that they cut twenty nine hundred people uh, with COVID. I know COVID was the you know impacted them, but I mean twenty nine hundred people. Like once you lose those top tech people, it's hard to get them back. So that that was seemed very short sighted of them, especially since they probably got billions of PPP and stuff. But anyway. I guess we'll see where it goes. Well, Boeing and Northrop win $82 billion from NASA. And so this is from Motley Fool. It's kind of like an investment play. So that's maybe why they have a little bit of a shocking $82 billion figure there. But the background here 
is that NASA is looking for a launch vehicle for uh, their exploration production and operations contract, which will have at least five and perhaps as many as 20 launches of the SLS, the Space Launch System from Boeing. And uh, Northrop, of course, is also a participant. And so it looks like they've actually created a new joint venture between Boeing and Northrop called Deep Space Transport LLC. Um, So this is the first I've heard about it, at least. Um, And so the $82 billion figure there is if you got 20 launches and it costs $4 billion per launch, which is the anticipated current cost of it, then you got to $82 billion. Um, But I think, you know, a lot of those are options, not, you know, locked in, of course. But of course, the NASA says that they are trying to reduce the cost of SLS to perhaps a billion to 1.5 billion per launch. So there you go on the bottom end, maybe 20 missions, $20 billion or so, if if you can imagine them cutting three quarters of the cost out. So yeah, uh, we'll, we'll see. There's a lot of consternation over the SLS, of course, at verse uh, what, what SpaceX is doing. I think the SLS is actually slated to, to launch pretty soon. So it'll probably beat the Starship um, out to space. But uh, yeah, it looks like... Um, the SLS has more thrust than the Falcon Heavy, but Starship is quite significantly more than, than the SLS in terms of payload capacity to, to Leo. So anyway, that's that's a lot on that. Yeah, I mean, I think we have learned over time, right, that the sole source typically does not result in huge cost savings. Uh, ULA sort of demonstrated, yeah, you might get some cost savings, but 50%, I mean, that sounds... Sounds a little bit idealistic. Um, the, 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 the whole argument, though, for for doing this was that, you know, the, this is the part that gets me. It's like almost NASA hasn't learned, you know, but that they they don't think anybody could possibly do this. Like they're, they're what they, they call the core stage and exploration upper stage could may take as long as 10 years, um, you know, to, to replicate um, and that no other company could do it. Um, you know, it's one of those things where like, I just don't think tech works that way anymore. I don't think the knowledge is sort of buried deep into these these things. I think, um, you know, we, we've seen it, right, even with hypersonics and, like, how all these companies like Everest and stuff are jumping into this game and learning it because they're super competent engineers and they're smart and they, they get up to speed and, and things like that. So, yeah, this, this seems I'm waiting for SpaceX and others to jump on board this and be... Like yeah, actually, you know what? We can compete. We can do it. You, know, you said you wanted the you wanted the co- the cost to get down between a billion and one point five. Yeah, yeah, we'll do it for nine hundred million. You know, so I think this will be fun to watch and to see like wh- what actually uh, what happens after you know this new new little deep space sole source consortium gets all comfortable and then they have their you know cereal bowl turned over. We'll, we'll see that in the near future, I'm sure. I don't know if they're going to get comfortable anytime soon with this uh, new space environment, but yeah, this is, sure. the pressure is going to be on them for, because if there's alternatives, then, you know, even if they do have this contract, that doesn't mean that they're going to, you know, get all those options and get all those launches. Right. Yeah. But it looks like NASA is pretty committed to at least five, right? So um, we'll see. Uh, thanks again, Matt. That's all we'll do for this week. And until next time. All right. Thanks, sir.